This is Dr. Mambo. Here, boy. Come on. Come on, Dr. Mambo. He's a doctor, like a physician or a professor? Yeah, he's a professor. Of being a dog? Oof, faced. Hello and welcome to the Steal My Name podcast. I'm your host, Bob Barrow. It is episode 12 time, and it's a bit of a different world, I would say, than I recorded episode 11 in. It's, uh, yeah, well, I don't need to tell any of you guys, obviously, or hopefully, I should say, you've been following the news and know what's going on with with COVID-19, with coronavirus. And speaking of this COVID versus corona thing, I have to say, I can't be the only one that noticed this, but as soon as I realized they were changing the name from corona to COVID, which is its actual name, coronavirus is a family of viruses, all I could hear was Mark Borchardt from American Movie saying, it's not COVID, it's COVID, man. COVID sounds like a coven. I don't know. That's That might just be me, but maybe I'm just too nerdy about this stuff. But yeah, it's it's strange. Obviously, people are freaked. People are panic buying. Today, when I recorded this, uh, they're doing a 24-hour martial law in California because, well, the per- as Men in Black famously said, the person is sensible. People are dumb. And... I don't understand why I've gone, but again, it's, I'm sure everyone has their horror stories of work that won't let them take time off or people that are being insensitive or rude, but I'm going to try and shine a little bit of levity in here, despite all the panic buying or whatever. And just another note, so many people claim that they have their zombie outbreak plans and their walking dead plans and all this shit, but apparently none of these plans included something like toilet paper. Come on. Like, I get it. You're, you're stuck inside for a few weeks, and that might be panicky. But, one, that if you get sick, disease doesn't cause the shits. Two, if you really are desperate, just get in the fucking shower. Like, what is wrong with people? <laughs> I know, it doesn't sound too glamorous to have to take the old, uh, the old shower head to, the, uh, to your boot. But, like, come on. It's, let's just all be sensible here. So I'm going to try and shine a little bit of levity on this. I know last week I talked about a guest episode that didn't quite work out. Uh, well, it didn't work out at all, actually. And I was also talking about Tombstone. But I decided, why not, uh, why not stay on message of what's going on in the world? So this episode, I'm going to talk about Eli Roth's 2002 film, Cabin Fever. Because I'm sure everyone's having a little bit of cabin fever right now if you're coming to the end of your first week of quarantine or self-isolation or social isolation or whatever word we're calling it. And let's have a look at a, a scenario that's a hell of a lot worse than what we're all having to deal with right now. So, synopsis. So I don't forget, because apparently I can do a lot of things on the show, but synopsis, as you guys know, is a constant flaw of mine. Five college students, uh, or five college graduates, even though there's no implication that they've graduated, rent a cabin in the woods and begin to fall victim to a horrifying flesh-eating virus, which attracts the unwanted attention of homicidal locals. Sure. Not quite on point, but it's there. So, cabin fever for me is I have a a large attachment to to this film. And I've talked in previous episodes about this idea of with a movie that's really important to you, it's not just the film itself, it's how you come to it and how it impacts other uh, other portions of your life. And that's what happened with me with Cabin Fever. When this movie came out, it's 2002, so I had recently decided that I wanted to to get into filmmaking, that I was going to be some kind of filmmaker or writer, etc. So I really started to pour myself into that pursuit. 
but as a as a horror film fan, it was never really, or I couldn't really find a lot of understanding or respect with uh, watching other filmmakers talking about it that you could be so hugely inspired by horror films. Because even other horror directors or filmmakers in general, when I used to sit and listen to them talk, they're referencing stuff like the French New Wave or uh, Italian neorealism or all these films, which wonderful films, but those weren't kind of my bread and butter. It was, you know, Spielberg movies and Lucas movies, but also horror. That's what I loved. That's what I loved at the time. So all of a sudden, here comes this film that was so incredibly inspired by the genre itself, and not just the genre, but the films I was watching, that I could look at a movie and go, oh my god, this is made by a filmmaker who is into exactly what I'm into. And it went it went beyond that, because Eli Roth, for his, whatever you could say about his later output of films, or possible flaws as a character, or the character he presents to the media, the early press, it was actually the second issue of Rue Morgue I ever bought, was the cover for Cabin Fever and Rue Mor- or Fangoria was doing it. But in the Rue Morgue issue, Eli Roth did an article or wrote a piece himself talking about not only the films that inspired Cabin Fever, but the exact pieces of those films and where they reflect in in the movie itself. And to me, that was that was a complete revelation for me to have these movies and to have Cabin Fever and be able to sit with this article and go, that's where he got this idea from. And that's what this is an homage to. It was, it was a breakthrough for me because for the first time I could watch a movie by a director who was inspired by me. It was that generation of filmmakers were coming up who grew up watching Carpenter and Romero and Sam Raimi movies and, and Wes Craven movies and stuff like that. So for the first time, I felt like, oh, I could do this. I could take the inspirations that are important to me and are meaningful to me. And I don't have to try and, you know, pretend that I'm so hugely influenced by, you know, quote unquote, classical films or classical filmmakers. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not taking a, uh, a poop on any of that. And when I got to, co- when I got to college... I ran up against a wall because I don't know how much it's changed with film schools or anything like that, but I ran into a world where it was still like, no, it's cute that you like these movies, but you can like five or six of them. The rest, you have to be inspired by the by the Coppolas or the the French stuff or the old Italian stuff. That's what serious filmmakers do. You you can't be inspired by Dawn of the Dead or Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Evil Dead 2 or Peter Jackson movies, the early splatter stuff. And I always thought that was a big chunk of horseshit. So I spent most of my three years at film school, you know, maybe given my current circumstances, maybe I should have played a little more ball, but I spent my three years fighting against that. And... I was like, no, we can totally be inspired by this. And I kept holding this film up as an example. But I think the only horror film that was ever treated with any critical respect by my faculty was The Ring, was Gore Verbinski's The Ring remake, which is a fine movie. But I remember sitting in those classes where they're just blowing this movie. Like, guys, there's I have... 
20 better movies back in my dorm room right now. But it was always just dismissed, except by a very small group of teachers. I had a writing teacher, uh, David Barlow, who was great. And you wouldn't, just to look at him, you're like, okay, you're a bit of, you're an established guy, you know, suit, sport coat, and very proper looking. And we had an assignment where we had to bring in a movie and show a scene that introduced a character. And all the usual suspects were brought in. People were showing scenes from... Pulp Fiction or Gladiator or The Godfather, any of that stuff. So everybody goes and it's, you know, they're good. These are excellent movies. Don't get me wrong. So I decide I'm going to go the opposite route. And I showed the opening of Puppet Master, the Charlie Bands, the first Puppet Master where Blade's running through the, running through the hotel, through the Bodega Bay Inn. And some of the class is kind of scratching their heads and some of them are like, yeah, that's great. And it finishes, and my teacher, to my shock, was like, okay, this is excellent. Let's really pick this one apart. Because it's an intro done with very little dialogue. Blade can't talk. We get a, a couple reaction shots of him, but mostly it's just a first-person POV of him running around people's feet. So every now and then I'd get kind of that that burst of enthusiasm from faculty. But my other connection to this movie is that when I was in the fourth grade, I, I actually had, I had fleshing disease. I remember waking up one morning and I had what I thought looked like a little pimple on, uh, on my butt. Cause of course, if I'm going to get it, you're going to get it on your backside. That's just that good old barrel luck. So I need, I don't think much of it. You know, or if you really look at yourself, unless you're one of those people that has like naturally flawless skin and we all hate those people if it's not us then you, you can probably find something on your body that's gross. <laughs> we, are, we are just living just decay factories. Uh, just don't look too close, especially at spots you don't get a good look at, look at often. You, you've, you'll find something on you that's like, oh, God, what the hell is that? And 99 times out of 100, it's absolutely nothing to worry about. So I wake up with this zit on my butt, and I don't really give it much thought. Go to school, whatever, go about my day. Get up the next morning, and it's grown. It's now this kind of big open sore. Sorry to get graphic, but whatever. You're listening to a show about cabin fever and that's just me. We're very, was raised to be very kind of upfront, honest, gross family like this. So I'm dealing with this big, gross sore on my arse that throughout the course of the day begins to consume both of my arse cheeks. And so just to give you kind of you know, frame of reference here. If you're in the fourth grade, so it would be 10, maybe 11 at that point. If you took your hands of a 10 or 11 year old, unless you have like giant mutant hands and just kind of cupped your arse with them, that's how big these things were. And with, I, I knew I had anxiety as a kid, but it was never diagnosed. You didn't know what to call it. You were just overly sensitive or weird or whatever. So I would always get very panicked if I was sick or it hurt myself so I didn't say anything, you know, it'll just go away, just go away, just compartmentalize and just log it in a box and ignore it. And I was sitting on the couch watching TV with my dad and I stand up to go to the bathroom and he looks at me. He's like, what the hell did you sit in? I'm like, what? And I look and the bottom of my pants are soaked, just soaked. He's like, go do changers. What are you doing sitting on the couch when you've sat in something? He just figured I'd sat in something outside and not dealt with it. So I go up to my room, change my pants, and by this time, these gross sores in my arse are starting to uh, leak, to uh, put it politely. So I go up and I change, come back downstairs, sit back down on the couch, 
and I go to stand up again a little while later and it's I've soaked the drawers through again and my dad's like okay like what the hell is this so thus begins a week-long process of, of having to show my butt to adults and that's just horrific for a fourth grader so they take me to the doctor and I'm allergic to penicillin and erythromycin, so two out of the three major families of antibiotics. But it had been, I can't remember if it's erythromycin or penicillin they gave me, but the doctor's like, well, we need to hit this fast with something, and we haven't tried this medication on him since he was two. There's a good chance he's grown out of it, so let's give him that. So I proceed to spend the whole night violently being ill And it also caused one half of my face to swell up. So I get up the next morning with this shit on my arse and the whole, I believe, was the left side of my face. It looked like someone had just taken me out back and just punched the living shit out of me. So they rush me up to the hospital. A pediatrician comes in to look at my backside and instantaneously sees it. Okay, get him into bed, get him upstairs. And they caught it before they had to start hacking pieces off of me, which is lucky. But the doc was like, you know, you're lucky you got him in when he did, because, you know, if you'd have waited another day or so, that's when it would have hit the, let's start removing parts of him face. At least that's what I was told at the time. So I proceeded to spend a week in, uh, in, in the hospital up at Civic, and it was just terrible. I was obviously being in the hospitals gross, and you're a kid, and you don't understand why you're in pain, and they put this gauzing on me to try and soak up my discharge. It was fucking gross. And the netting was digging into my gross sores, and they were bringing in therapy dogs, and I'm not a big dog person, so I would wake up with this fucking German Shepherd in my face, And everyone on the floor, it seemed, had some kind of rash or skin problem. There was this Polish kid in the bed next to me that had bad poison ivy, so his family would be in there all speaking Polish. And I'm just, this is great. And there was, this is where the story actually gets really horrible. There was a little girl across the hallway that they had to keep uh, in a chemical coma, they had to keep her out all the time. Because she had rolled in poison ivy so bad and that it had gotten in her mouth and was down her throat. It was it had gotten inside of her body through all possible entrances. So you can imagine that nightmare. And I remember one night she woke up, she came out of the medication, and the howl that this poor little thing let out, uh, oh, I can I can still hear it. It was horrific. But I got to play a lot of Nintendo. They had a Super Nintendo, so I played a lot of Star Fox. And obviously, you get over it, get past it, it makes for a good story. But I've always been sensitive to stuff with movies with diseases or skin issues and stuff like that. When I was in the eighth grade, first day of, uh, of summer vacation, all of us, all the buddies, we went down to the rotating train bridge in Peterborough. It was the Dully, it used to be called, to go swimming. So I spent eight hours on this bridge above the water with no sunscreen on. So my back, my shoulders from about the middle of my back up was one huge, massive sheet of blisters. And I had two big, huge ones sticking up off my shoulders, like half an inch wide and high. These things were huge. And like I, when they all popped, it was so loud. It actually woke me up. <laughs> I know I'm sure I'm just gross. You're like, why the, how the fuck is this making anything light? How are you <laughs> making it levity? Us being stuck inside. But just, you know, 
things could be worse. I remember sitting and my dad peeling the skin off my back, and it was just, ugh, ugh, just gross. You know, and then acne as a teenager, all this stuff. So I've always been very sensitive to this. So with cabin fever, it really grabbed me. But the the movie itself, maybe I should talk a little bit about the movie itself. It's such a great film. I, I can't lie. I know there's some people that don't like it. They might find that the characters are a little cloying and stuff, or it's just gimmicky, or, you know, oh, this just moving from one gore scene to the next. But as I talked about in the opening here, it's it's an homage to these earlier films, things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, obviously, with Evil Dead, with the, the cabin setting. But it manages to kind of transcend that homage and take all of those pieces and root it in a very modern concept, or at least modern for 2002. You know, I could say something like Rob Zombie's output, very heavily inspired also by a lot of these same films, but really no attempt to modernize them in any way. You know, with House of Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects, those are all period pieces. And even the rest of his stuff, there's no real attempt to make it set in the now of when he made it, if that makes sense. Whereas this film is very firmly 2001, 2002, that kind of turn of the millennium era. And I talked about last week with the great clothes. This is another one where the clothing is perfect. It's the the fashion people on Freddy vs. Jason and Cabin Fever. It's, it's the same people. It's which is nice to see because where a lot of us, we, we love the, the horror movies from the 60s, 70s and the 80s. And even though I was a kid in the 80s, I look at the teenagers in those movies and I, I can't really relate to how they look. They're a product of that time. Whereas watching something like Freddy vs. Jason or with Cabin Fever, it's fun for me because I can look at them and I can see people that I knew. I can see like, oh, the, the girls are wearing clothes that my girlfriend in high school wore. Or I had that sweater. Or, you know, I knew guys with those haircuts or vice versa. So that's a really fun thing. And I think it makes it more relatable. Because while these are archetypes, you know, there's the the douchey meathead. There's the jock. There's the pretty peppy girl. There's kind of the the nerdy pale outcast. Go Rider Strong. Boy Meets World. And, you know, his desperate attempts to get a girl that's, you know, punching way above his weight class. They're still relatable, not just because it's just good performances, but I think at least just for me, it's because I knew those people. I was, you know, one of those people, obviously the pasty guy who is thoroughly punched above his weight class for a lot of years. So when it comes to when it comes to ladies. So I could, that was great to see because there were so many things, like I said, not just the filmmaking side, but the character side of the movie drawing me in and making it feel like a world where this could happen to me. So I was basically, you know, I would say patient zero, (laughs) not to be too insensitive, but I was target market for this. And on top of, you know, recognizing the, the characters and being able to see myself and my friends in the situation, I, I brought up a little while ago, this, how it was so firmly rooted in 2001, 2002. And it's not just the look and the way people are talking to each other, you know, the reckless use of the word gay. I watched this with my nephew. And uh, when that line came up, he kind of looked at me. He's like, 
what is it? Like he couldn't understand using that as a, as an insult. It's like, well, it's this doesn't matter about the squirrels. I said, it's the time it's we're hopefully like we're, we're moving past that. But I'm like, dude, you kind of have to understand that was unfortunately very much in keeping with the moment and how guys especially would have talked to each other. But because it's so firmly 2001, 2002, and it's coming, you know, this is a year after 9-11 has happened. So there's very much a feeling in the world of you don't know who to trust because the world that we knew was had ended in its own way. You know, September 10th, 2001, was a completely different world, at least for us in, in the West, in Canada and the United States, than it was on September 11th. Everything that we thought we knew had completely changed. You, you could say an innocence, but I'd say it's more of an arrogance bubble that was popped, this very self-contained dome that we had all been living in since the end of World War II. So there really was this sense, we, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know who to trust. We, we don't know anymore what's going on in the world. This kind of very smooth trajectory where we thought we knew the future and what it was going to hold for us in this almost kind of entitled sense to the world that we had, where, you know, our, our culture is going to stay the same, our world's going to stay the same. We'll have, you know, some small progression for good stuff. But we were, we were locked in kind of an odd stasis. Our world was our, the world our parents had lived in with just some minor cultural changes. You know, the movies and the theaters were different and the video games had changed. So this film, while not really being the centerpiece that a lot of people remember, it really plays into that, and it's this idea of you, you don't know who to trust. You know, that's taking kind of this thing, the aspect from the thing, of you you don't know, you they don't know who's sick. They don't know who's infected. They don't know how they're getting sick. They don't know why they're getting sick. The situation is just unraveling on them so quickly that they can't really get a handle on it. It's just kind of hit them out of the blue. Now, you could say, you could mirror it to something like 9-11, where you could say that, well, you kind of did know this was coming. And if you had have chosen compassion and understanding instead of responding with fear and violence, probably could have prevented this. Same when the, the person carrying the disease shows up to the cabin. Instead of approaching it more level-headedly and calm, they respond with panic. You know, oh, the dreaded other has come to our door. I didn't expect to tie this into 9-11, and I'm not saying that it's that it's some kind of, of huge statement on it, but, you know, all great art is a reflection of its time. So maybe someone out there has written a paper on the, uh, the relevance of this and how it compares, but anyway. This idea of, of not knowing who to trust, and all of a sudden, people that you thought were your friends, how they've now become a potential threat. You don't know how they're going to react. You see that with Bert, how quickly he freaks out. And the same with, with Jeff, with the two guys especially, of course, how quickly they spaz out. And they're like, no, I don't care that we're friends. I don't care that you were my girlfriend. Nothing. Get the fuck away from me. Stay away from me. And how quickly it collapses and that panic starts to set in, especially when you're trapped in a small space with each other. You know, they're all so close to each other in this cabin. And also very quickly, the world outside starts to become threatening. This spazzy dog, 
that Grimm in the opening, that's Dr. Mambo that you heard in the opening, is keeping them kind of contained and caged where they are. So it's just piling this dread and threat upon themselves. And it really compounds this sense of panic that they're feeling where not only are you sick, but now all of a sudden you can't leave. You know, we're so used to as a society, we live luckily enough. We live in a country where if I get sick, I can go to my doctor. If I can't get to see my doctor, I can go to the after hours clinic. If I can't get to the after hours clinic, I can go to the hospital and I can get seen. I might have to wait a little while, but if I'm really sick and ill, I know that I will get the treatment that I need. Well, these people are now isolated from any sense of help in a situation that is so out of their control. And it's not someone in a hockey mask. It's not a lunatic with a chainsaw. It's a villain you can't see. It's a horror movie really without a villain, which is one of the reasons that Eli Roth had such a hard time trying to sell the movie. Because how do you market it? How do you push that out to people? You know, like obviously the slasher craze had died in the 80s, but you'd had kind of a resurgence of these teen horror movies with Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer and Valentine and Urban Legend and all this stuff where they, again, you you had a villain you could personify. You had something that the audience could get behind and go, this is the bad guy very clearly. This is the good guy very clearly. Well, here, even our good guys aren't really great their normal people collapsing under stress very quickly. Like, yes, we can look at Ryder Strong as kind of our our hero. You know, he's making, you could say, kind of more moral decisions, even though always wait if you're going to do something with a woman or, you know, make any kind of consented attempt. You wait till they're awake. Like, let's let's be real here. But again, it's the time. So it's the finger bang misfire. <laughs> That I'm referring to, but it's it's not a clean film in terms of trust, in terms of characterization. It's it's messy. It's scary, and that's that's reality. Look at look at what's happening right now. People that would normally have been sensible a week ago are the ones that are fighting over stuff in stores, are yelling and screaming at. People, customer service reps who are scared, and but still trying to keep essential services open. It's people that own businesses that won't give their employees time off. Or if they do give their employees time off and can afford it, they're still not sending them home with any kind of pay. It, it's how quickly we can turn on each other and not provide the kind of emotional or empathetic support. You know, what happens when the first of their friend gets sick? They don't keep her in her room. They lock Karen in the fucking tool shed. Like, that's horrific. I get it. I get being put in a situation like that where it's like, holy shit, this is escalated very far out of our control very fast. So lock them away. Get them away from me. If it's, if I can't see it, I'm perfectly safe, which is not true because as we come to find out in the movie, she doesn't get any of them sick. It's actually Ryder Strong, our one moral character, is actually the one that got her sick by giving her the water, which it's just... It doesn't seem like an overly complex film, and I've spoken to people that don't like it because they think it's a bit of a dum-dum. It has a weird tone where it kind of flips between this very serious 
violence and heaviness with the disease and then flips over into some very silly shit like Deputy Winston or Pancakes or Harmonica Man or anything like that. But I think that's a great reflection of how insane situations like this can feel where you're trying best your best to deal with this, but how quickly things that wouldn't have been that weird without this catalyst, without this other you're now having to deal with, start to you make you feel crazy. You feel insane. I remember just myself on Tuesday when I finally decided to take my leave of absence. I remember coming home and I I, I like to think of myself or fancy myself as somewhat level-headed when there's an emergency going on. Some of my friends listening to this might be like, yeah, right. I've seen you jump six feet in the air because you thought you saw a bug. To be fair, bugs should stay outside. If it's around me, I'm, I'm allowed to panic. But I was totally out of it the last couple of days even. I've slept too much. I haven't, I've completely lost my schedule. I haven't been eating properly. You know, I think everybody in the world right now is stress drinking. And so that's even just a situation like this, which is still moderate, is still under control to a certain point. You know, our leaders are on this, Canadian leaders at least. Trudeau's speech was just, that's a fucking mic drop of a speech from a leader say what you want. You don't have to like him as a leader or like anything that he represents, but that's the kind of person you want in charge. Because what did he do? He walked out of his house, said everything that they're doing to help, said it calmly, compassionately, and just crushed the response. Just crushed it. I watched that and was like, no, yeah, I vote for that party, but yes, thank you. Compared to those poor people in the States or other countries where their leaders are just fucking off their rocker. So anyway, to undigress from that digression, I can understand, I can relate to how quickly these people fell apart. You know, we all like to look at movies like this and, you know, whether it's Walking Dead or Cabin Fever or whatever, we like to look at it and go, well, I wouldn't do this and I wouldn't do that. And movies like this, they allow us to have those moments because even watching the movie with my nephew, he's like, well, why would they do that? Why would they do this? When you're under pressure like this, you, you're you reacting to situations. The characters in this movie are reactionary. You know, the characters in most horror movies, for the most part, because the situations are so intense and become life and death so quickly, for the most part, you are reacting. You're not acting on something. Like, unless you're like, okay, let's sit down and make a plan. Now let's act upon that plan. Usually something happens to you and you have to react to it. Now, there's moments in the movie where it's like, you probably wouldn't have done that. Like when Ryder Strong pokes the the body laying in the reservoir with the stick. And, of course, he falls off the ladder. Like, we all knew that was coming. When he sleeps with Marcy and leaves the handprints down her back. As soon as he does that, it's like, well, dude, you know, you're going to get something. And which is, is a great little nod. You know that, don't worry, I'm clean. Like, nope. Nobody's clean in this situation, buddy. Wrap that shit up. Though I do love it when he goes in and pours the Listerine on his dick. <laughs> so, because I think we all know somebody that's been in that situation. So, or vice versa, having to splash a little bit on yourself because you've made a bad decision. But it's that that collapse of trust that I think is kind of the thematic core of the film that brings people back because it is one half of this movie and we can't really talk about cabin fever without talking about kind of the over the top 
spectacle of this of the gore in this movie because it is a gory film but i think for the most part it's not really exploitive you know it's not happy fun time gore you know it's not brain dead or bad taste or reanimator or anything like that the the extremes that they go to and i remember at the time when this came out especially seeing jordan ladd's face in the the decay makeup with her teeth hanging out i that was a brutal image at the time now we've had the presentation of violence in in movies and tv and stuff has has changed so greatly since 2002 it's 18 years so you know you look at the walking dead on tv now like people are much more accustomed to this but at the time to see such a realistic presentation of this level of gore and violence it's outside of maybe like day of the dead where it was this very clinical approach to this over-the-top violence. I hadn't... I'm sure there's... You're listening to this right now, and some of you are going, well, what about these 10 movies? And what about these 10 movies? And sure, I'm sure I'm missing some. But the... You know, it's it's a film of moments. Great set pieces, like a lot of great horror movies are. You know, like I say with Day of the Dead, you know, there's the gut drop and the head shovel. You know, Dawn of the Dead, there's the helicopter zombie and the ear... So the screwdriver in the ear, which again is referenced great here when he stabs the big guy in the ear with the uh, <laughs> with the screwdriver. And these set pieces, there's obviously, you know, there's Karen's decay makeup. There's the the leg shaving, I think is what most people think about when they come back to the movie, is that leg shaving scene where she reveals the decay on her leg, which just oh god, it makes it makes my skin crawl even though I've seen this movie countless, countless times, it still gets on near skin, pun intended. And that's what's great about this movie is you might not relate to the characters. You might see them as kind of obnoxious or you might see stuff like the, you know, the harm when the guy gets smashed in the face with the harmonica and swallows it a little over the top or the deer through the windshield as being a little over the top. But it still has enough from the you know the thematic qualities and this over the top really ugly violence reality based like sure i'm sure you can't actually swallow harmonica like that but the fact that what killing these kids isn't their arms being hacked up and flying everywhere it's their bodies literally feasting on themselves or it's other people's distrust for them that ends up getting them killed because the fun thing about this, and I never, I'm sure I've thought about it in the past, but it never really occurred to me before, is of our, the five kids and the four of them that get the disease, none of them actually die from the disease. Karen is still alive when Ryder Strong kills her, beats her head in with the shovel to put her out of her misery. Uh, Marcy is ripped apart by the dog. Jeff is shot by the cops at the end in that great Night of the Living Dead homage. Bert has his head blown off by the hillbillies and Ryder Strong is still alive and rotting in the water at the end of the movie. So it's a movie about a flesh-eating killer virus, but it never actually kills anyone. Even the the hermit that has the disease that starts all this off, they set him on fire. He would have died from those wounds or from that trauma. So it's another thing that, you know, it just adds another layer to this. 
And I think it's it's one of the things that I love about Eli Roth, but became so frustrating for me with his later output because that attempt to make the film more complex and more layered and more interesting, I think was lost from pretty the other movies he's made. I remember being so incredibly let down by the first Hostel because while the setting is cool, the setup is really brutal and, and fucked up. The guys in it were so obnoxious and so shitty that I wanted them to die. I had no one to root for. Where the dudes are kind of obnoxious in this, but you still don't want to see these kids get hurt because they're just kids. Hostel 2, I think, is the best of them other than Cabin Fever. And then less said about Green Inferno, the better, because that movie was just a fucking pile of shit, uh, which upsets me to say. It was just terrible because, you know, it would be so great to have a new, really good cannibal movie, but he just completely dropped the ball on that one, which I don't understand. But anyway, that's besides the point. Hopefully he can, you know, obviously he's still a young guy. He can still has lots more movies in him. So hopefully kind of returns to form eventually whenever he decides to or if he ever decides to. But the reason I get so passionate about it, because like I said at the top, this movie was so inspirational to me. It And not just in terms of character or whatever, the opening, that beautiful opening credits with the, the decay of the opening credits is even the movie itself is starting to get sick. The I've used so much from this movie in, in the short films and the stuff I did at school that I've made uh, from the, the lighting choices to the thematic choices to the music using kind of sound design as music. My first short, which I'll, I'll post the link to for Behind My Eyes, there's a lot of cabin fever in that. My second short, Mom, with the actual disease in that film and the look, that green sick tone, it was probably, it's not the movie that made me want to make movies or made me decide to make movies, but it's probably the one that inspired most of the actual output that I ended up making. The visual look and the the sound and aesthetics and all those things. So I can't recommend the movie enough, even if it's something you haven't seen in years. Come back and give it another chance. Uh, it's a perfect movie for young horror fans because it's a movie that they can learn from. You know, you give that kid that DVD from all the commentaries and behind the scenes it's just a wealth of you like this. Here are the 20 movies you need to go and watch if you haven't seen them already. And the his commentary on this, I listened to, oh my God, at nauseum, so many times because he doesn't actually talk about the movie. He just kind of tells his story of from being a kid and being into horror and going to film school and then working afterwards and building up to getting the movie made and all the wacky stories, like how the police dog in the movie wasn't actually the dog they originally got. They had thought it would be great. Let's. They found out they could get the black dog from Black Dog with Patrick Swayze. Well, obviously that dog was super old by this point, so they ended up with this happy-go-lucky aging dog that showed up that just wanted to be pet and sit with everybody. So they went so far the other direction that they brought this maniacal police dog in that couldn't actually be in scenes with anybody. Which is why, other than the one scene that Eli Roth's character, Grimm, is holding the leash, you never actually see it on film with anybody. Because it tried to eat Ryder Strong in that scene. <laughs> so, 
I won't, like, I could tell stories about all the little individual moments, but I won't do that. Get the DVD, read about it. There's so much to love. If you can separate kind of from where his career went after that and just look at it, treat it as just the film itself and this wonderful little moment in horror cinema because it was part of this huge boom that was happening at the time, this revival of horror of... I guess you could say hard horror, horror that didn't pull punches, that was wanted to be spectacular and fun and silly and over the top, but also serious and have a message and say something about people. Because that's the best horror is reflective. You know, that's why so many horror fans get pissed when, say, something like Get Out comes out and they're like, oh, horror is finally smart, finally saying something. It's like, motherfucker, the genre has been doing that for years and for the most part doing it better than other genres, short of like documentary, where, you know, that's just a message movie, you know, horror has a long history about making some kind of comment about the world that they're living in. So check it out, spot all of the references and hidden moments, anything from the obvious Texas Chainsaw Massacre shots to David Hess's beautiful music from Last House on the Left. It's just, it's an absolute blast of a good time. So, and again, if you end up with fleshing disease on your butt, don't hide it from your parents. Go to the doctor. So, on to Deep Space Nine. We are looking at episode 12, Battle Lines, which aired on April 25th, 1993. After showing Bajoran spiritual leader Kyle Paka the wormhole, she, Sisko, Bashir, and Kira crash land on a moon. Kyle Paka dies, and the three meet the unfriendly locals. So, this is a great episode, because it's it's further establishing kind of the this gray morality that Deep Space Nine traffics in and will traffic in through the rest of its series, especially once it gets its feet under it. The One of the great parts about this one is the return of Kyle Paca, the literally, I call her the Pope, I guess. She is the head of the Bajoran religion. And she was only here and in the pilot episode, in Emissary. And honestly, I wish they'd done more with the character because the actress playing her has such a great presence. It's always refreshing to see a positive representation of a religious figure in any kind of art where there's no corruptness to her, no politicization. She is just a genuine holy person whose only goal is the spiritual well-being of her people. And going forward, you're going to we delve so much more into the Bajoran religion and its its political leaders, but it becomes it becomes much more politicized, which I guess all religion is. It really it's all about politics and control, and that's the side of it that they tend to go with throughout the rest of the series. But we only see her twice. But I always really like Kyle Paca. She's a very calming character. Now, this one. Is some has some great, just pure old school sci-fi in it. This concept of the prison planet that they get stuck on and the punishment that these people are going through isn't just imprisonment, it's this nanotech that's in the air that it won't let them die. Every time they get killed or sustain some kind of life, you know, get their chest, they're shot or stabbed or whatever, the nanotech brings them back to life. So they're not able to actually die. Their punishment is to fight this 
civil war that they've been having endlessly over and over. Maybe if they like cut their heads off or something, I don't know. They never really get into it. But that idea is is such a wonderful science fiction concept. It's just pure old school sci-fi. And it's not just using this to, oh, look, isn't this a fun episode? Like all great science fiction, it it has a thematic base. It has It's doing these things for a purpose. And here it's to show, to help Major Kira start to recover from the traumas of her past. Because as I've talked about before, Bajor is recently just recovering from the Cardassian occupation. So Major Kira was born into that. She's a child of war, a child of violence. And her readjustment to a normal life is an ongoing thing for her. And as soon as they're dropped into this situation, she immediately goes back into, where are your patrols? Why are you doing this? What, what's your death counts? Why are, where are your men? This inability to shake off this life because it's all that she's known. It's this idea of how do you go home? How do you stop you know, how do you live a life without war when your entire life has been war? A noble one, it was noble what the Bajorans were doing, but there does come a time where you have to, you know, set your guns down and go home and pick up the pieces and try and get on with actually living instead of getting on with, you know, a life of dying. So this is really the beginning of that for her. And it's something that they're going to explore a lot as the series goes on. While the premise isn't implicitly unique to DS9, the resolution of the episode is something that only they would do. You know, if this was Next Generation, Picard, he would have found some way to save these people, these two warring factions. He would have gone to their, he would have seen what was happening, gone to their home world, and forced the the home world to set these people free or he would have found uh, Jordy would have and data would have found a way to deactivate these nanites or something but here they're left in a situation where even when they're presented with hope they've so forgotten how to live that they can't take it they can't take this helping hand that's being given to them and they're not saved they end the episode where these people are still in their same situation. But Kyle Paca is remaining behind to help them start the slow journey of saving themselves. It's a great comment on the fact that there's no easy solution to people that come back from war or who have led a, some kind of a life of violence in one way or the other. There's no band-aid. There's no, no one's coming down from the sky to, you know, beam you up and take you away. And then all of a sudden, yep, you're fine. No problems anymore. Everything's normal. You, if you're in that situation, if you're a product of that situation, yes, your physical locations can be changed. The, the outside influences that were causing you to have to live this violence can be removed. But you still have to rebuild what's inside you. You know, other people can come in and rebuild homes, can take the guns away, but the damage that's internal has to be repaired by you. And that's what's great, is that it's grim. 
that they have that they have to leave them like this, but they also have to learn how to live again, just like Major Kira is, instead of just living to die or to kill other people. So great episode done in the way that only Deep Space Nine can do it. And this kind of stuff would, they'd only get better at these concepts as they went along. So book, this is one of the first times that I'm going to talk about the book that I actually finished this week. (laughs) So I read The Rhythmatist by Brandon Sanderson, came out in 2013. And I had just finished a run of heavy books. I had actually just read a book uh, called Auschwitz. And it was written by the Jewish prisoner who was forced into being Dr. Mangala's personal pathologist. So after I read that, I was like, Jesus Christ, I need something happy. And I had been saving this book. So I went with this. Now, I've talked about Brandon Sanderson's books on the show before. I've recommended the, the Mistborn books. And he's such a great author. When it comes to a Brandon Sanderson book, we, for the most part, you, at this point, you know, in, cause he has, he's a very prolific writer. So he has lots of books out there. We generally know that we're going to get an engaging story with engaging characters. He's a very, very good writer. So usually you can expect that from him. The fun twists, what's not expected with each book is the world building he's going to do and what's the magic system, because those are things that are inherent to enjoying his works. And especially with his magic system, something that he takes very seriously in how he builds them and how they're executed within the plot. So in terms of world building, this one's fun because it's not a part of his Cosmere, this kind of overarching uh, universe or I guess solar system or so that his other books take place in like Mistborn or Warbreaker or Stormlight Archive. This one is an alternate Earth where North America is actually a series of islands and archipelagos. And the international governments aren't what we know. The history of the world isn't what we know. And it's set in kind of this turn of the 20th century gear punk, steampunk, semi-Victorian style. So it has a lot of different fantasy and sci-fi elements kind of coming into play, but none of them really overwhelm each other. So it's not inherently steampunk, it's not inherently gear punk, and it's not inherently fantasy, but it's this great melding of all three. Now, like I said before, with Sanderson, you want to know the magic system because whether it's the use of Stormlight and Surge Binding in in the Stormlight Archive or Allomancy in Mistborn, which I think is his best magic system, here it's based around rhythmatics, the study of rhythmatics, and that's why the magic practitioners are called rhythmatists. And what it is is it's the the magic system is drawn from literal drawings with chalk and these different symbols and formations and strategies that these practitioners literally get down on the ground with a piece of chalk and start to draw them. And they can create creatures that go out and battle each other, or they can erect walls, or etc. Lots of different things. It's such a neat idea, because he had kind of touched a little bit on this in Elantris, his first published novel with the magic system uh, Aeons, I think he calls them, where they're little drawn symbols and the symbols each do something different. But you can draw those symbols in the dirt if you want to, or actually they can draw them in the air 
I believe, with their fingers. But here, you have to have a piece of chalk, and you have to have a surface. The magic is some kind of combination that only works with a, a surface to draw it on and a piece of chalk. It doesn't work with pencil or ink or anything like that. That is so neat. And it's also, it's set in a school, so we have kind of this... I I don't want to compare it to Harry Potter, because other than the fact that it's at a school, it really isn't like that at all. Because in typical Sanderson fashion, he's always looking to give the established fantasy tropes a shakeup. Whether it's the concept of the Chosen One, or the Hero's Journey, or something like that, he's always... You know, as not just a writer, but as a fan, it's what do you want to see? You want to take these ideas and just kind of pick them up and look at the other side. You know, like with something like Mistborn. Well, Chosen One's always winning. What would happen if they lost? What would the world be like? That's the world we're coming into now with Mistborn, or at least the first three books. And here we have the same thing. We have a world that exists where these people can use this powerful magic But our hero is someone that can't do it, which is such an opposite. It's such a a wonderful left turn from what you would normally see in any kind of fantasy setting, you know, because that's, you know, Luke Skywalker can use the force and use a lightsaber. You know, Neo can use the Matrix better than anybody else. You know, Marty McFly has his driver's license. Like these are... It's such a simple thing if you think about it, and I'm sure he's not the first one to do it, but it's so refreshing here because that means we now have a story where our hero cannot solve his problem with magic. And that's something that Sanderson, if you watch his lectures on YouTube, his uh, he's a professor at uh, BYU in Utah, he talks about that, and that's what makes any magic system in a book interesting, is... What is its ability to solve the character's problems? And the more you can make interesting, you can make the magic system, it actually becomes more interesting if it doesn't just become a golden ticket to solve everybody's problems. And here, our hero has to solve problems by studying, by being cunning, by learning everything he can about the magic system, but has his, has an inability to do it. So he's basically like a hardcore fan. You know, he's somebody that, say, exists in a world of superheroes, knows absolutely everything. He's the world's biggest comic book fan, but he doesn't have the ability to be a superhero himself. And it leads up to an absolutely wonderful ending where this all kind of comes together. But also, the magic users that surround him, that are on his side, the good guys, are also inherently flawed in their own way. The other lead character, the young girl that he's paired up with, she can do the magic, but she sucks at it. Their mentor figure, their Gandalf kind of figure, is exceptionally skilled at it, but he collapses in the face of confrontation. So that's just purely Sanderson always looking for a new angle to try, a way to shake things up, to to make these, you know, to put, you know, new flesh on the bones of the genre. As it's a first book in a promise series, and especially because it's a YA book, even though it's been seven years and he keeps saying, I'm going to get to it, I'm going to get to it. 
there isn't a ton of background given about the world. We don't get a real big handle on the villains that they're fighting, but but what we do get is very, very interesting. We have this kind of sort of ominous tower with a capital T that it's referred to that's out on one of the islands in the center of the United States, uh, Nebraska, Nebraska, where these rhythmatist students are being trained to go and fight. That after they graduate from this school, they have to go and serve 10 years on the front line, maintaining this huge chalk drawing around this building and then fighting things that come out of it. But we don't get too much of a sense. It's such a tease, and I'm really glad I didn't read it back in 2013, because if I had seven years to sit with this book and still didn't have a sequel, I'd be pissed, especially because he's starting new series, and I get it, you know, he's got contracts and stuff with other people, and you have to fit time in to get this done, but it was, I didn't, I didn't feel robbed, obviously, because the book does come to a very satisfying conclusion, but you are so primed for more once this ends because the magic's interesting the world is so vast and still so very mysterious at this point it's not overly complex because it is YA but it's not pandering or cheap i didn't guess the villain until the end until the big reveal happened he he kept ahead of me on that even though when he explained it it's like okay yep you put all the clues out there on Front Street for us. It's a delightful read. If you're a fan of fantasy or if you grew up as a Harry Potter fan and you're kind of looking for something else to read that's semi in that vein, if you just like people, a book, it's a book about people studying and people going to school. So if you're into that, definitely check out Brandon Sanderson's The Rhythmatists. So recommendations. Staying on, staying on theme. What better movie exists about people being trapped inside some kind of a structure and unable to get out? There's hundreds of movies like that. There's the whole genre is based on get them inside a room, trap them, and then slowly turn up the pressure. Obviously, the best example of this ever made is Biodome, starring Paul Shore. <laughs> I'm serious, dead serious. There's never been another a better movie made about that subject. Because if there's a bubble, you can bet Polly Shore can cause trouble in it. I fucking love Polly Shore movies. Absolutely no apologies. Me and my sister grew up on them. We love them. I can still watch them on a regular basis. And Biodome is our favorite. I fucking love this movie. And if you need a good laugh in these turbulent times, check out Biodome. Uh, keeping with kind of a the weird viral world that we live in, total opposite spectrum of Biodome, check out Street Trash. It's uh, one of the melt movies with movies like Body Melts or Slime City, and it involves these hobos finding this uh, squirreled away box of uh, Viper, I believe it's called, this some kind of brandy or liquor that when consumed literally causes you to melt. So great movie, a little long, but very trashy. It's from that, that New York indie scene in the 80s. But definitely worth checking out. Uh, for a book, uh, because I just read Sanderson's Arithmetist, I would recommend his other... It's not so much YA. You could say it's almost kids. You know, that kind of elusive 11 to 13 or 14-year-old market there. His series, Alcatraz versus the Evil Librarians. There's five books. I've read the first two. I have the fifth one, but I still need to get three and four. 
They weren't easy to find for a lot of years. Uh, Scholastics had the contract for them and kind of botched their rollout. And then maybe Tor? Somebody else got a hold of it and re-released them. But they're in these very expensive hardcovers. And I have kind of a problem spending 20 bucks on a hardcover that I'm going to read in two hours. But it's an excellent series so far that I've read. And it's about this idea where librarians are actually this evil cabal that have twisted uh, information in the world. So what we think of as the world isn't actually the world. When we look at a map, what we think the Earth looks like isn't like that. And the, the magic system in the book, these talents are very individual and weird. Alcatraz, our hero, his talent is that he is a klutz. So that would mean that if somebody, he's like the, he's like a perpetual, he's a walking Rube Goldberg machine. So if a bad guy is coming at him, he will trip over a bucket and that bucket will fall against something, which will fall against something, which will fall against something out, which will knock the bad guy down. His grandfather, the Gandalf character, he's perpetually late for everything, which means no one can ever kill him because he's always late for his own murder. Hilarious. They're cute. They're funny. This kind of revisionist world that they're living in is very interesting. And again, it's another book about learning and having to study and the power of knowledge. Yes, I know a lot of wonderful librarians and the whole profession is so incredibly noble. And it's not really a tack on librarians, despite what it says in the title. But check it out. Alcatraz versus the Evil Librarians. There's five books, well worth the purchase price, if you can maybe find them a little cheaper than 20 bucks a pop for the hardcovers. So, that brings us to the end of episode 12. Coming next week, I thought we would have a look at another uh, a great Trapped in a Small Environment movie, and also another hugely early inspirational film for me. So I'm going to be looking at Neil Marshall's Dog Soldiers. Werewolves fighting British special forces trapped in a farmhouse. Absolutely fucking dope movie. And I think it's available to stream on Amazon or something. So you can, if you don't own it, you can check it out in advance. Until then, you can find me on Facebook at Steal My Name Cast. You can find me on SoundCloud at the Steal My Name Podcast. Uh, like, follow, subscribe. There's a bunch of back episodes there you can listen to because for the next couple of weeks, if you're lucky enough to be able to stay inside and self-isolate, We've all got some time on our hands, so no excuse to not go and dig into the back catalog. There's also 13 episodes of 14 Months Apart that you can check out as well. A Frame Apart, my old show, old, old show with Ariel Fisher is still up on SoundCloud, so you can find that by searching A Frame Apart. There's 100 plus episodes there for you to check out. So lots of content, lots of chances to hear my voice over the next several weeks. So until then, I want to thank you guys very much for joining me for episode 12. Be good to each other. Stay safe. Stay isolated. It's not a joke. You know, you don't need me to sit here and lecture you about anything. But it's not a joke. You know, if nothing happens, just in Peterborough where I am, we've had three cases. If we don't get any more, it doesn't mean we wasted our time. It means we did everything right. If nothing happens... It means we did it all correctly. So again, stay safe. And until next time, remember to steal someone else's name because this one is already taken.